Good evening, Brewer Church. My name is Max. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm excited to worship with you tonight. If you'll please turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We will continue our study in this book. And when you are there, if you will stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them, he said, some of them said, He cast out demon by Bezobel, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Bezabel, and if I cast out demons by Bezabel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, when one stronger than he attacks him, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever not, does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. Be you may be seated. Tonight, as we continue our study through the book of Luke, um, I'm going to do my best to exposit and to go in depth as to this passage. And there will be other verses I reference and I point to. However, um, I don't have enough time up here to do uh, this passage justice, nor the other verses I will turn to. And so I encourage you guys, don't just take my word for what I have to say, but rather um, search the scriptures yourselves. Um, go to every reference I go to and see if it is truly what, is, what I am communicating and what is being taught in that verse. And we encourage you guys to ask questions. If you don't understand something I say, or if there's something in your own personal reading that you're going through and you don't uh, know the answer to, as Alexander said, he has uh, office hours. And so you can answer, take your questions to Alexander, and uh, he'd be very happy to answer them um, as they come about. Luke chapter 11 is a, a little bit of a switch in the book of Luke. The first 10 chapters, we're really trying to hone in on answering the question, who is Jesus? And we will continue to uh, unpack that as we study the rest of uh, Luke. But one thing that has kind of switched is going from who is Jesus to what is Jesus doing? And so we see that here in chapter 11, our passage tonight, as well as the other verses and chapters that will come following. And so here we find Jesus um, going about in his ministry and probably in the region of Galilee. And it starts in verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So this is nothing new, as um, we are familiar with Christ and we are familiar with the Gospels, is quite often in his three-year ministry that he is encountering um, the demons. It's clear in the Gospels that the spiritual realm is on full display, that there's a lot of spiritual activity taking place in light of the Son of God being incarnated in flesh, walking uh, on the earth, that there's the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, and law is interchanging. And so it's not anything new that Christ has the power and authority to cast out demons, that demons have to bend their will and obey what the Lord speaks and what the Lord commands. And, but we see a contrast here that I like to highlight in that when a demon uh, possesses a man, the man is 
mute, and he is, cannot speak. In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 12, the man is not only mute, but he's also deaf. And so this is to contrast that Satan is the deceiver, but he's also the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, while Christ is the one who comes to give life and life abundantly. And when this man encounters Christ and Christ heals him of the affliction of the demon, not only is he no longer mute, but now he can speak. Now he can is freed and he is given life. And that contrasts the difference between the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and the kingdom of God that comes to give life and to set the captive free. And another thing to recognize in this verse, as it says in verse 14, it says, and the people marveled. The people recognized that something special took place. Something happened. There was a supernatural encounter that took place. And so we, now we see the response to this display of power that Christ has in verse 15. It says, but some of them, he said, cast out demons by Bezabel, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. We know that here when it says some of them, um, some of them who say that Christ casts out demons by the prince of Bezabel is the Pharisees who are speaking. We get that from the Matthew 12 account. And the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They are the, the scholars. They are well-read in the um, verses of the Old Testament, and they are aware of the things of God. Um, but what's interesting is here, it says Bezabel. And so Bezabel is not new for us in the grand scheme of all scripture. It, he shows up once in the Old Testament. It was a god of the Philistines, um, the Israelites' fiercest uh, neighbor enemy, uh, of the city of Ekron specifically, is where Bezabel was one of their gods that they would worship. But now, over time in history, the Pharisees are attributing Bezabel to be the name of Satan himself, the prince of demons, as we see here now. And we know that Satan goes by many names, and we see that throughout all of Scripture. And what's, I'm going to keep saying interesting a lot, unfortunately, but Christ, uh, the Pharisees don't deny what took place. They don't behold the supernatural. They don't behold the miracle and deny it. They, they recognize that Christ just did something. And rather than accepting that he was of God and that he did it by the power of God, they rather attribute it to something else. They don't try to say, oh, it was some uh, magic trick or some fast one that Christ just pulled, but rather they had to recognize that Christ actually did something. Um, but it's interesting that they would twist and pervert Christ, who's the embodiment of truth, the incarnated Son of God, the Logos, and they would say that he is doing it through the power of, um, of Satan himself. They, they would attribute the Logos with the father of lies, the, the great deceiver. So that's the first response that the Pharisees have into calling him Bezabel. And the second response we see is that while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Um, we see throughout Scripture that there are often times where God's people um, test God or they challenge God. And they do that from a heart posture, not of trying to commandeer or disprove God, but they do it from a heart posture of faith, of in their weakness, in their dependency, they need God to step in and to remind them of truth or to give them assurance or to give them encouragement. However, that is not here what is taking place. The people who are trying to test God, who are trying to seek for another sign from heaven, are doing it from a place of wanting Christ to prove himself um, more and more. And this becomes problematic as how much is enough to put our faith into Christ. And there's a uh, We'll get to, I think, in Luke 16 of um, 
uh, Lazarus and the dead man, or it's not Lazarus, but um, anyways, we'll get to it where uh, even if a dead man was to rise from the grave, still people wouldn't believe. And so this is worth asking ourselves as people, we see two responses to the miracle of Christ of healing a man from demon oppression. What is our response when we see God work and move? Now, in our daily lives, God is active. In our daily lives, God is doing much to bring about his purposes in his kingdom. In our response, we probably aren't tempted to um, be like the Pharisees and to call it satanic. But I think even worse, though, oftentimes we can attribute the good things in our lives to ourselves. We can say by our own works or in our own wisdom, we have brought about all these good things that we have. Um, we have our year in review coming up uh, next week at our Christmas party where we just go through a bunch of pictures and relive what God has done in this year. And it's a wonderful and joyous time to see how the Lord has been nothing but faithful. But again, our, when we do that, we shouldn't think, oh, look what we have done. Look what we have built. We shouldn't be thinking that, oh, if I earned this job or I deserve this job. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Heavenly Father. And so thus we should rightly attribute and give thanks and praise and glory to where glory belongs. And likewise, so often for us, I know for myself, it can be, there's going to be a frustration of the season of life I find myself in, the job I'm working, or is there a frustration in the season of singleness, or in your marriage, or how much money you're making, or in your family circumstances. There's much reason to be upset and frustrated, and we, in a way, could even blame God. And so likewise, we should be very careful to recognize the, the promises of scriptures that God has never forsaken us. And God has us right where he wants us to be. And so even then, we shouldn't be bargaining with God that, Lord, if you give me A, then I will start doing more B, insert what you will. Um, God is not someone to bargain with, but he is someone who is faithful day in and day out with his people. And so thus we should give him honor and glory and praise. We should not respond any way wrongfully to the things that come to pass in our life, but rather to recognize that everything is a gift from the sovereign Lord. So it's worth asking ourselves um, that question. So now we'll look at the response that Christ gives to these objections that we find in verse uh, 16. So reading in verse 17 says, But he, Christ, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Bezabel. Christ being the God-man, knowing their thoughts, being God himself, rightfully responds to the foolishness of this accusation. For the Pharisees and for these people to call into question by whom Christ is driving out these demons, not only are they questioning Christ's character, but they're also questioning his work. And so Christ is trying to show them the foolishness of this assertion in these two verses I just read. Um, Satan, I said, is the great deceiver. He is the father of lies, and he goes by many names. And uh, one name that we see in Scripture is he portrays himself as an angel of light, and that he tries to deceive people by portraying himself as being someone good. And so the Pharisees here rightfully, not rightfully, they think they have a I got you moment with Satan. They think that Christ being Satan, being the prince of Bezabel, they caught him by essentially asserting that Christ is the greater demon and the demon that is possessing this man is the lesser demon. 
And so Christ is the greater demon, is driving out the lesser demon. Um, and so that, that's what they're essentially asserting in their observation that Christ is the Prince of Visible. And that is how he is bringing about this supposed uh, miracle. As Satan is trying to deceive the people into uh, painting himself as an angel of light so that then people would believe him and follow him and listen to his teachings. And this is foolish, as Christ says. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. This would be like the idea if a commander is leading his people into battle, and as soon as they get onto the battlefield, the commander turns around and starts killing his own people. Both people within the army and also people outside the army would both look and recognize that this is a divided army. That this, even though they're wearing the same uniform or have the same colors on, is divided because they're quite literally killing each other's, killing each other. And history proves this to be true in so many different ways. The greatest empires that we've ever seen in this world and historically didn't fall because a bigger fish came along and ate them. And rather they fell because of internal fighting. Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire that, that covered all the known world at that time didn't fall because another nation came up and overthrew Alexander the Great, but rather the leader that unified that entire nation died at a young age. The region, the the nation, the land was broken up into multiple regions. And very soon, just as quickly as it all came one, it divided into separate entities and beings into its own nation states. And so likewise, Christ is asserting that it is foolish to say that Satan is against himself. Because Satan is a unified kingdom. Satan and his demons do have a purpose in what they are trying to accomplish and what they are running after. And that is to blot out God overthrow God and lead people away from him. And so uh, Christ is asserting the foolishness of their, that they would observe that he is doing this through, by the Prince of Bezable. Um, and even more drawing out on this foolishness, we go to verse 20, it says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, oh, sorry, I, 19. If I cast out demons by Bezable, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Christ here is rooting himself in the tradition of the prophets and in the Old Testament. Christ is rooting himself in the Old Testament prophets and saying that if the prophets who performed miracles, the prophets who showed supernatural acts of power, he is likewise the same power that, empower, that gave them what was necessary to do what they did, now Christ also, in that same power, now works and moves and furthers his kingdom. And it's ironic because the prophets that we read in the Old Testament, their greatest adversary wasn't necessarily the um, neighboring nations. It wasn't the Babylonians necessarily or the Assyrians. It was actually their own people. The, all the prophets we read face great persecution and great hardship. And the tip of that spear for most of it, if not all of it, was their own people, the people of God, the Israelite nation, who the prophets proclaiming God's truth, proclaiming God's word, thus saith the Lord. It was then the people who out of anger or hatred or not desiring to turn away and repent of their sin would persecute the prophets. Sometimes even their own family would be the ones out to try and kill them. So likewise, now we have Christ who has come to the Israelites, who have come to God's nation is proclaiming this truth 
And they are now, the Pharisees are now denying him, twisting his words, and trying to disclaim him for being who he's not. And so we see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that these are the people who know the Old Testament the best, who are the religious leaders, and yet the hypocrisy is to deny Christ, to um, not be in accordance, as, as Christ says here, with uh, your sons who cast them out. Therefore, they will be your judges, that the prophets of old one day will stand and testify to the Pharisees against their wickedness and their abuse and perversion of God's truth. But one thing that is interesting is Christ here makes certain that we are aware that he's not with Satan, that he's not doing these things by the power of Satan. But another thing that Christ asserts is that he's not in the line with the Pharisees either, that their teaching, their understanding, their view is not in accordance with what is actually revealed in God's truth. And so Christ um, paints himself not and leads with the Satan nor um, with the Pharisees. And so just as Christ roots himself in the prophets to prove he is who he says he is and that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, in a lot of ways we can as well. Not in that we're a fulfillment of anything necessarily, but in, in some ways we are in the sense that if you want to have confidence that your faith is real, if you want to have your confidence that your faith is genuine, then God has given us a book to live by, a book that proclaims his gospel truth, but also mandates and gives direction for every aspect of life. And so how we test if someone is a, is a true believer is by their fruit. And the standard of what is fruit and what isn't fruit is what this book says. And so just as Christ looked to the prophets to give testimony and power to his witness, we can point to this book and say, look, that I am in accordance with this. I am in alignment with this. The more you walk by this book and the teachings of it and the truths of it, the more confidence you can have that Christ is with you, the Spirit dwells within you. For we know that the only way to live out this book and to be obedient to, to, our, to, the best, to the, um, our greatest capacity is by the Spirit. And the only people who have the Spirit are the children of God. And so thus it, it works together. That it, This is why it says, like, work out your... Um, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is, that, it is God who is at work within you. And so likewise, God doesn't desire for his people to doubt or to have lack of faith or to question or worry about their salvation. But rather, God desires to give us great assurance and great confidence that we are his and he is ours. And he does that through the teaching of this word and our obedience to this word. And so anyways, we should follow Christ's example of being rooted in this word and, and thus, as this word says that there are still many sheep to come into the fold, there are still many sons and daughters to be revealed. In a way, we are the fulfillment of those because we live in accordance with, this, with the truth of this word. Um, yeah, Christ desires to give us just greater confidence and a solid foundation to stand upon. But something that is real and that Christ is talking about in this verse in 19 as well as the past verses is Satan's household, his, his kingdom. Um, Satan does have a real tangible kingdom and presence here in this world. Um, and I'd like to point to a couple of verses to uh, help us paint in and understand what I mean when I say this. The first passage I'd like to turn to is Luke 4. 
So we just go back a little bit. Luke 4, and I'll read verse 5. It says, And the devil took him up, this is Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory for... Uh, to you I will give all this authority, and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all, your, it'll be all yours. All be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I know that we call Satan the father of lies. However, he is not lying here. And since that Satan does have real authority, Satan does have real, a real kingdom that he can offer Christ and does then tempt Christ by. Another passage to turn to is 1 John 5. First John 5:19 says, "We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one." And so thus everything this entire world, all the people of it, all the things of it, lie in power of the evil one. And lastly is Ephesians 2, which I think would pay in the, our greatest understanding of Satan's kingdom. Ephesians 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. It says, And you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we see that Satan's kingdom is this earth, and we see that Satan's kingdom is extended to everyone who does not have the Spirit. Or another way to say it is that Satan's kingdom covers everything that the blood of Christ has not redeemed yet, essentially. So Satan has a real kingdom. He has a real presence. He has real authority and power. And so now we can look at how difficult is it for Christ to overcome that kingdom. Verse 20 says this, it says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Christ asserts it's, it's a finger. The finger of God casts out this demon. The finger of God overthrows Satan's kingdom. And it's like a finger is not dangerous. I could poke you, I guess. There's no jiu-jitsu submission, I know that, with a finger. It's like, what, what do you do with a, fling, a finger to inflict harm? It's like, well, you flick something. God flicks, and this demon comes out. God flicks, and Satan's kingdom is, is crushed and overcome. We can buy in um, to a lot of false teaching that almost glorifies Satan. A lot of it has to do probably with like the Hollywood movies that we watch where we have God here and we, Satan is portrayed as his equal opposite. God is the good, all-sovereign one 
And Satan is the evil, all-sovereign one. But however, that is not what we find in Scripture. Every time we see Satan, it is very clear that he is on a leash. We see this in Job. Satan can't touch Job unless first God gives him permission. Satan can't even enter heaven unless God first gives him permission. And so we need to be very careful about when it comes to our theology and our understanding of Satan, is that he's not the equal opposite one of God, but rather he is a created being who is lowly and is incomplete and at the will of God. As Martin Luther said, uh, he is the devil, but he is God's devil. And he is on a leash. And he only goes where God allows him and permits him. But uh, sometimes we can almost view Satan too highly and actually exalt him and glorify him by giving him more power and more influence than what he actually has. He is a created being who is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. He doesn't have, he can't read our minds. He can't lead us astray in that way. Um, he's not God who knows the thoughts of people. And so anyways, we need to be very careful when it comes to, because as we see here, it says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. And so let us make sure that we rightfully understand who Satan is in the grand scheme of, of Scripture and the truth of this book so that we don't fear him any more than what we ought to. Because like you said, he is real, and he does have real authority, and he does have real power. And I, I think, I hope I've laid that out well in the Scriptures we've read. But in comparison to God, he is nothing. In comparison to God, he is God's devil. So this kingdom that Satan has exists, but it is changing. Um, the Ephesians 2 passage is specifically referencing to before Christ. That before Christ came, King, uh, Satan in a lot of ways had complete, had a lot of reign and power and influence over the nations and over the people. But now that Christ has come, now that Christ's kingdom, as, as we read in verse 20, by his finger by God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Christ's kingdom has come upon us, has been ushered into the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And so now it is changing. What was once the majority, what was once the major and dominant influence, is now slowly but surely dwindling. Um, and it's, again, it's the kingdom of God has come. It's not the kingdom of God will come or will eventually come or maybe will come. It's the kingdom of God has come. It has arrived. It has been ushered in by Jesus Christ himself. And so we'll see more of this in uh, the, our next two verses. It says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. All throughout scripture, we see the theme that Christ has overcome. And even now, Christ is still overcoming. We have this language of, he who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. Or fear not, for the world hates you, it hated me first. And we have all this uh, victory language of commandeering, of Christ overcoming and saving and, and taking dominion, if you will. And so he does this in two ways, as we see in these two verses. It says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So it's talking about Satan. Satan is guarding his palace. Satan is guarding his kingdom, his dominion. But Christ... But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he does two things. 
He takes away his armor in which he trusted. And secondly, he divides his spoil. Satan um, has many different tools and tactics that he used to keep people away from God. The chief of them being that he lies, the father of lies, and he is the great deceiver. He deceives people. And so it's not hard to look into our culture, into the world, as to all the things that are there that lead people away from God or distract people from seeing God rightfully. Um, one way to do this is to call sin good. It's to celebrate sin, to say that your desires and your heart and all that you are is good, so thus you should live within it, you should pursue it. It's actually a good, it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful thing. That would be a tactic of Satan. Another is other religions. Not all religions lead to Christ, only I am the way and truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Other religions is a wonderful way to distract people, to get people to believe that they are worshiping God when actually they're worshiping a false idol or an image made in their likeness. Philosophy is a wonderful thing to do this as well, that people buy into different worldviews or um, ideologies or philosophies that elevate government more than what they should or elevate man to what they aren't. And then we put our hope, we put our faith into that. And last thing I thought of is like science and religion aren't, can't coexist with one another. That is a, a lie that um, the culture and the world has bought into when it was actually Christians who launched us into science and the pursuit of science and the love of science. So Satan has his armor. Satan has his tactics, and that is to lie and to deceive. And this, this passage asserts that Christ as a strong man enters into Satan's own dominion, into Satan's own palace, his own house, and he takes the armor. He takes what Satan uses and, say, wash him away. And that he does this through the proclamation of truth. Christ, like I said, is the incarnated Son of God. He is the Logos, the embodiment of truth. Um, um, and so thus, truth is what is opposite of lies. Truth is what overcomes deceit. Light brings forth into the, the darkness and overwhelms it and, and quenches it and ceases it to exist. And so Christ, how we take Satan's armor is through the proclamation of the truth. It's through believing truth and sharing truth. That is what takes away the tools and the tactics that Satan uses to lead people astray, to keep people in darkness, and to continue to give him authority and power. And secondly, it says that he divides his spoils. When the strong man takes away his armor, which he trusted, he divides his spoil. The spoil of the strong man is the heart of man. Satan, the more he keeps people in the darkness, the more he keeps people away from God, that is his spoil. That is his chief end, is to have hell as filled as possible so people don't see God rightfully and don't worship him in spirit and truth. Christ's reward for his life, his death, his resurrection, is that he brings people into his fold. He inherits children, sons and daughters, into his family that they get to join with him as co-heirs in praising and worshiping God for all of eternity. The spoils that Christ gives, that he shares, that he divides, is a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. This is what Christ now offers to us, that we have now been entrusted with the good news of the gospel, 
And so that's we, when we share the gospel, we are bringing someone who was in darkness out of that into light. And this is to the praise of Christ. Christ is the one who has inherited. When we get to say that Christ is our portion, we are his portion. We are his treasure. And thus that is why he willingly and joyfully dies for us on the cross. That is why even now he night and day stays up interceding in the Holy of Holies for us as his children. And so the spoils of, the, of, the, of Satan is the strong man setting free the captive, is bringing people out of the bondage of sin into to be slaves of righteousness and to be able to worship God in part here in this life and for all of eternity and fullness in the next. So Christ overcomes um, these two things of Satan, and this is how the kingdom of God goes forward. As I said, there is a real kingdom of Satan, but nonetheless, the tides are turning. Power is being exchanged. God is going forth. And if we just look at our church, we might not necessarily see it. If you just look at the churches in the West, you probably won't see it either. But we take and scope the, the, the Catholic church, or for those who have memorized the Apostles' Creed, the universal church. The universal church. The church is growing. The church is exploding. The church is growing in places that we never thought it would, in Iran and China. The, the church is thriving across the globe. And that's where we need to be very careful that when we are understanding God's kingdom, yes, we desire it to be in our hearts and our own lives. We desire it to be here in Indianapolis through Rua. We desire it to be in the West, in the United States. But God is so much bigger than all that. God is working to see all the nations, every tongue, every tribe to come and confess him. And so thus, the church is expanding and blowing up in ways that we could never even imagine because we only read about it or we only listen to it. But if we were like truly to see the fruit of what the Spirit is doing. And so thus, Christ's kingdom is surely has come and is surely advancing day by day and quenching and squashing Satan's kingdom. Um, and so we partake in this as we follow Christ's example, as we live in the Spirit, and as the Spirit illuminates truth, and in the boldness of the Spirit we proclaim the truth, that we share the gospel to anyone and everyone who would listen. The design of Christ's gospel is to despoil the devil's kingdom. That is the purpose of it, is that Satan had dominion, and the gospel has now gone forth to set the captive free. And so we have been entrusted with that, and now that is what we get to proclaim and the solution to all this isn't that we need to become the strong men. We, we don't need to necessarily work harder. I don't know. I, I, I can get intense sometimes. But we don't need to. We, we don't need to be the strong men. We, we don't need to be the Savior. Like Christ is the Savior. We just need to believe Him. We need to believe Him at His Word. This book is full of promises for you. For you, as a child of God, as a son and daughter who has been redeemed. And we just need to believe that God is, Christ is who he says he is. And he has come to do what he said he will do. And he is doing it through your very life. No matter what it is, no matter what your profession is, or what your living situation, or who your family might be, or how bad your past is, or how much money you do or don't have. God is accomplishing his purposes in and through your life. We just need to believe that Christ is doing that. It's our own lack of faith. It's our own weakness that inhibits God from 
truly being glorified and magnified in and through our lives and all that we do. Um, so now the Lord, in our last verse, distinguishes the difference in what it looks like to be in his kingdom and what it looks like to be out of his kingdom. And so we see that in verse 23. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Scripture is very clear. There's only two categories of people, and that is it. There are those who are dead in their sins, and those who are dead in their sins, apart from the Spirit, apart from the grace, are in direct, willful rebellion against God and His goodness. Then there are those who, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, have been redeemed, have been brought into the fold, into the family of God, and now have the Spirit, and now live and reside. Something about me, I don't think many of you guys know this, but I love country music. Like, I, I really love country music. And, however, there's some songs that I just hate. It, it's such great music, terrible theology, though. Just terrible theology. But on the radio, one that's really popular right now is a Luke Bryan song, and it goes, I believe all people are good. And in, I don't know if it's the Western church, I don't know if it's all churches, but it seems the more I talk to people, specifically Christians, we create this third category. We create this third category for our neighbor who is a good person, who has offered help at times, who um, likes the cults as I do, or you know, shops the same place as I do. And they're a good person. They treated me well, but they for sure don't walk with the Lord. They for sure aren't Christian. We don't even claim to be a Christian. But they're a good person. And so we, we create these categories that just aren't, true we, we create there's no such thing as neutrality in scripture and that's not to that's not to confuse us it, by having these two categories it actually makes very clear who you are dealing with and what they need so often it's that we have a bunch of medical professionals in the church and it's like you need the right diagnosis to give them the right medication and if you start with the wrong diagnosis, then you won't give them the right medication that they need. And so if we have this category where, oh, they're good, like they'll, I think God will let them into heaven, then it's like, well, you're not going to give them the, the remedy, the medicine they need, and that's the gospel. And so it, it's hard when, like I said, they're our neighbor, and they, they treat us well, and they look like us, and make it even more difficult. Like In my mind, I jump to that. My aunt and uncles, who I love care deeply, and would confess that they're Christians, but I know from the fruit and evidence, it's, it's, not, it's just not that clear. And it's like, oh, I'm, it's, it'd be easier for me just to say, I think, I hope they're going to heaven, versus to like rightfully have a conversation with them and ask them, because when I actually find out that I actually do have these conversations, I ask them what the gospel is. They have no idea what the gospel is. And it's like, you claim to be a Christian. Like, you fundamentally can't be a Christian without knowing what the gospel is. And so when we create this category, there's this complacency that we can so easily fall into where it's like, oh, I, they don't need to share the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. My Muslim roommate needs to hear the gospel. That, that's clear. But these people who are kind of gray, uh, I'm not really sure. And so anyways, we, we, aren't, we don't steward the relationships and opportunities that God gives us to be able to proclaim the gospel. And so that's where we need to think biblically about people. If someone is not a professing Christian and not bearing fruit in their life, they are an enemy of God. 
They are in rebellion to the Lord and His ways. And they need to hear the gospel. And they need to accept it and to believe in it and to cling to Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. But, like I said, we need to view people biblically, but we also need to treat people biblically. I find so often that the biggest pushback on what I just said about viewing people as enemies of God is like, well, you don't treat them like an enemy. And that's true. Christ commands us to love our enemies. He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we should be able to view people biblically as in rebellion to God, dead in their sins, while also treat them biblically and that we sacrificially love them. We do all that we can to win them over to Christ. And we're not afraid to have the difficult conversations and that all that we're doing, we're trying to build to the proclamation of the gospel so they would put their faith in Jesus Christ and come to know him as their Lord and Savior. So let's think, um, people, think about people biblically and let's also treat people and love people biblically as well. And because even with these two categories that uh, Christ here gives us, it says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so we can contrast that. So there's this one person who is not with God, who is, who's against him, and he doesn't gather, but he scatters. So that there's a person, this category, they push against God. They are not for God. They are against God. They push against God, but they also run from God. They scatter from God. They run the other direction. They don't pursue God. They don't look for God. They don't want God, but rather they confront God. They push against God. And so this is one category we have, and we see that consistently throughout scripture, that the people who are dead in their sins love their sins, want their sins, and thus don't look for God, actually run away from God, and are against God in their lives and in what they are doing. The second person we see, though, is someone who is for God, someone who is with God, and someone who gathers to God, who is drawn to God, who goes to God. And that would be hopefully us, is that we are for God and that our lives hopefully reflect that, but also as Christ gathers, now we desire to gather. Um, just as James says, faith without works is dead. If if we do not, with our lives, seek to advance the kingdom of God and to further the kingdom of God, then our, our faith might be dead. Um, so anyways, we, we take on the mantle, the, the mission of Christ that he has, led, he has left us. Now we read every Sunday at the end of the service, the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so that is someone who is found in God, who is with God, who is for God. And again, this, I, I, I'm driving home this idea that there's no neutrality in Scripture because Christ is our foundation. Christ is the foundation upon which all Christians stand upon. And so the, the analogy that came to my mind is if Christ is with, if we're all steel beams, let's say, we're all steel beams. And so with each member of the body, Christ is building something with each steel beam. And if we have this third category of someone who is morally good but doesn't trust the Lord as their Savior, then he is like, let's say, a wood beam. And so you add that wood beam into the structure. And sure, it, it's not going to fall, but over time it will. Over time it will become a divided household. Over time it would become a divided kingdom because it is not of the same. It, it, and so we need to be careful that how we view people and how we treat people is biblical. 
because we don't want wood beams added to what should be an all steel structure because it will cause the structure to, to fall and to not be able to stand firm. And this is why, like, we as a church, you know, we see this in script, like, a little yeast and the whole bread will go uh, leaven and stuff like that. Um, and we've seen many churches crumble. You've seen many churches where the, the pastor comes out and, and the sin he's been living in, it's like, what? and then they, the pastor over time completely denies the faith and walks away from God. And it's like, oh, no wonder that church crumbled. No wonder everything went the direction it did. And so it's very, we need to be very careful about um, who we're asserting to be on the foundation of Christ. Because in Christ, we are all the same. We are all one. And thus, we don't want to create any um, back doors or shortcuts for people when it's clear that it's through Jesus Christ. When he says, I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is why we as a church have a very um, high view of membership. And that's why we put you guys through three weeks of having to have us, you know, not yell at you, but rant on for an hour. And then we also ask you guys to mem memorize the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Is because like we want to safeguard the, our body. We don't want anyone to fall between the cracks. And actually, who we've pulled a lot of our information from for uh, membership, Mark Dever and his nine marks, people, when he started implementing membership, some people in their church who have been there for years came to Christ because they realized that, oh, wow, that was the first time they were actually confronted with, like, oh, there's a cost to following Christ. And we're confronted, like, oh, I actually, I might not actually be a Christian. And so anyways, we have a very high membership in regards to, let's say, the other ch churches around us because we desire to preserve the, what is being built on the foundation of Christ. And also, we want to be doing life with, we want to be on mission with people who are also on mission for Christ. It's not just, uh, you know, we don't want a, a lukewarm or complacent Christian. We want people who are on fire for God. We want people who are living for God. And so hopefully our membership helps flush that out and helps give people purpose and something to run after and how they can, their, as a member, can play a bigger part to the body of Christ that we are running after. So we guard membership. Um, we want trying to all be found in Christ. As Christ gathered, now we get to gather in the Great Commission. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are now ambassadors for Christ, that we yearn for people, we uh, advocate for Christ. And then um, lastly, in conclusion, I would like to point to what is our greatest weapon as God's people? What is our greatest way to bring forth this kingdom of God that has arrived and is day by day winning? is succumbing, Satan's kingdom is succumbing to God's kingdom. If you will please turn with me to Ephesians 6. In Matthew 16, Christ promises to build his church. And when he says, when I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And it's not that the gates of hell are on attack or are moving forward. They are very firmly in place, the kingdom of Satan is very firmly in place, but rather God's kingdom, his church, is advancing and marching and defeating Satan's kingdom day by day. And so we see this here in Ephesians 6. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to start in verse 10. It says this. 
Uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So pause. Satan's kingdom. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. Thus, continue, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the bell of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Church, if we desire to see God's kingdom come forth, and for it to be present not only in your life, but in the life of us, in the life of Indianapolis, in the life of the United States and the world, our greatest weapon is prayer. All of this language, the the shield of faith, the um, breastplate of righteousness, the armor is defensive. The sword is offensive. And so thus, God's kingdom has arrived. And God's kingdom is moving in power and greatness. And again, it's not that we become the strong man. We just need to believe God at his word. We just need to believe that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go. We just need to believe Christ is who he says he is, and he desires to do what he promises to accomplish in and through our lives. And the greatest way you and I can see Christ's kingdom ushered in is through prayer. Time spent on our knees. Prayer that is rooted in the Word of God, says a spirit which is the Word of God, praying at all times in spirit within all prayer and supplication. There's no coincidence that this passage in Luke follows Luke 1-13, through which is the disciples' prayer. It's no coincidence. It's because if we want to see Christ's kingdom come in our life, in our day, it is through prayer. We are called Ruah, it's R-U-A-H, and that's a Hebrew word for spirit, because we as a church desire to be so dependent upon God and His Spirit that if He doesn't first move, then we are completely and utterly helpless, and we are desperate for Him. And again, the greatest way to see God's kingdom come and for faith to abound and for all, yeah, just all this is through prayer. And so let us be a church that prays. Let us be a church that prays abundantly and eagerly and anticipately and specifically. For God has a kingdom that is overthrowing Satan's kingdom day by day. We just believe God. And as as we've been saying for the past month, prayer is us asking God for what he has already promised. He has promised, as it says, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. We can experience heaven here on earth. Let us pray it forth. Let us pray it into existence. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, we praise you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the name that is above every other name. And oh, how glorious are you, God, in all of your ways. All of your deeds are good. All of your actions are wonderful. Everything you do is deserving of praise, oh God. And yet, who are we? What is man that you would be so mindful of him, Lord? That we were once dead in our sins? That we were once in rebellion and enemies of you, hating the things of you. But God, rich in mercy, sent Christ to save us, to redeem us, to purchase us through the shedding of his precious blood. And so we rejoice in our salvation, Lord. You give us a heart and restore to us the joy of our salvation, Lord. Will we be reminded of what it was like when we first encountered Christ at the cross and saw him as glorious and wonderful. Father, praise you that you use the weak and the foolish things of the world to display your jar, in jars of clay, to display your surpassing glory, oh God. Lord, would we truly believe Christ? We believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, God. And Lord, just as Paul said, Paul asked for prayers from the church of Ephesus. And the prayer is, he understands that his boldness his courageousness, his perseverance in the gospel going forth is rooted in the prayers of the saints. And so, Father, would we not try to, in our own device, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, accomplish anything for your name? But, Father, would we go before you in prayer as Christ intercedes on our behalf and would there, in, in the stillness, in the, in the darkness, in, in the morning, in the night, in the middle of the day, wherever it may be, God, would you meet us and Lord, would we be empowered by your spirit? Would we have greater faith to trust? Lord, the faith the size of a mustard seed would move mountains, oh God. Lord, we know your way is better. Your kingdom is better than anything we could ever want, anything we could ever deserve. And so, Father, would we see it come? Would we get to behold it in our lifetime? Would day by day, Lord, we're just confronted with the reality as the gospel moves forward, Lord? Would we see people who we love and care about family members, roommates, co-workers, God, come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, oh God. And Lord, would we be a praying people? Lord, talk is cheap. I pray, Spirit, that you empower us, Lord, to prioritize. You would convict us, Lord, to spend our time wisely. And ultimately, we would fear you, God, more and desire to live for you and serve you in everything that we do. We thank you and praise you for the cross. It's your holy name. We ask and pray all these things. Amen.